you know, all over the world with, you know, investing, real estate, inflation, recession. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are you seeing? What's, uh, what's your take on all this on the real estate side? Yeah, I think the biggest story right now is probably just in regards to interest rates, right? So more and more, you know, buying power is being erased by the rate environment. Um, people are seeing it's, you know, it's sort of like demand destruction, you know, especially young people, first time home buyers, people who haven't entered the market. Um, they're perhaps waiting for prices to come down. Now we're seeing prices come down, but the affordability factor still hasn't changed, right? Because they have to pay more interest. Their interest rate is, you know, 10, 20, 30% higher than it was. Um, and so their monthly payment increases. And, and so the market's still trying to figure out exactly what that means. Um, in the greater Toronto area, um, I think, you know, uh, today's Tuesday, June 14th, bond yields closed at the highest they had since um, 2008. So, I mean, that that's kind of a, a little bit fearful, just that statistic in, on its own. Um, yesterday, U.S. interest rates climbed at the, the highest rate that they have ever. Um, you know, a 30-year uh, fixed mortgage in the U.S. is now over 6%. Um, we'll see fixed mortgages in Canada over 5% by the end of this week. Um, it's a different economy than it was three months ago, right? And yeah, the housing sure. market is reflecting that. Um, and so, so the story now is sort of the timing of, you know, if you look at purchasing real estate, there's a couple of different things that are cost. But if you're just looking at it as an investment, you know, um, your interest rate could could have, could be an increase of $50,000, let's say, over your mortgage term. So if prices have come down more than $50,000, as an example, which in some areas they have, and you're buying on a fixed interest rate, right now, the you know, relative, you're at a relative advantage. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're on a variable rate or you're a first-time buyer or whatever it is, you might still be trying to wait to see if prices come down more. So yeah. that, that's kind of the summary of, of where the market has been in the past two weeks. A lot of, a lot of waiting. For sure. And at the same time, it's, you know, I think we're living through, at least in our generation, kind of like unprecedented times. Like we've never yeah. experienced inflation like this, uh, like actually experienced, actually know what it yeah. feels like. You know, it's the first time ever, uh, again, in this generation, at least in our, I'm assuming we're around the same age here. And yeah. and uh, interest rates too. Like we've, since I've been a working adult and had to worry about my own finances, all I can remember is very low rates. Yeah. Uh, cheap money. So, so that's a first for us too. So it's a combination of all these things, plus a recession, like we're probably, yeah. if not already in one. Um, so it's, it's so many, so much stuff going on yeah. behind the scenes that um, is new to us all as we all try to navigate this. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you, especially when you evaluate it as like a risk, like when you talk about a recessionary candidate, right? Like I would, I would agree that, you know, uh, from an output perspective, you, you can feel that, that the economy is in contraction right now. It'll, it's going to take forever to show up in the numbers because our economy is very pegged to inflation, right? Like house prices, as an example, or fuel or whatever it is. I mean, our CPI basket will grow. GDP will actually grow even when the economy is in decline because the price of goods is, is moving up, right? So, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, we're starting to see people lose faith in, in central banks. I think we're starting to see people lose faith in, in the government's ability to navigate this. And it, it's, this might actually be the sort of, we're all in this together part of COVID actually happening where we're all just like, holy shit, we got to kind of figure out a way out of this on our own. Right. 
Totally agree with that. You know, that's that's one of the other variables here that I didn't even throw in, but yeah, totally on the same page there for sure. Um, yeah, I want to, I want to look at it more from like an investing an investment yeah. point of view. Um, you know, I think there there, and I'd love to hear what you think. Like, there's maybe this window of opportunity between like now and call it until fall, where yeah. you could see some. Um, some good deals on real estate in certain areas. What's your take? Good deals like here and there. Um, uh, like, I mean, look, you weren't finding good deals for the past probably two years, really, right? Like you had to be searching pretty damn hard to find them. Um, I think that there's going to be more good deals in the next couple of months than there have been in the past couple of years, but I, I don't know. So if you're buying, if you're buying properly, if you're investing, like I think the important part that we need to, we need to get to the bottom of in Canada is what is a real estate investor, right? Because we, we think that somebody who owns a house that they've owned since, you know, the early 2000s and it's never gone down in value. So, you know, they think that they're a genius because they, they're, they've made three, four X their, their uh, value and, and 10, 20 X their equity. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to lever up and I'm just going to buy more real estate because I'm, I'm good at this. I'm so smart. I picked the right property. And, and then they're going speculate in the real estate market because and so to me, that's again, that's speculation. That's trading. That's akin to buying a stock. And you're just getting you're, you're getting the opportunity to do it with margin, which, you know, most banks aren't going to give you as a, as a beginner stock trader. So in Canada, our retail environment, like in the U.S., you hear about people jumping into GameStop or AMC or whatever, crypto or whatever it is. That's our the housing is our YOLO, right? Like it really is. And that's our get rich quick scheme. And so more and more people are piling into the trader. They were especially because they saw prices going up. And, and I mean, it was so predictable, right? It was the exact same thing as, as 2017. Um, so the reason I create all that context is because that to me is housing speculation. That's trading, right? These are people who are buying something with the expectation that it's going to go up in value. They're not buying it because it yields. They're not buying it because it cash flows. That's not investing. That's speculation. So if you're buying for the purpose of investing, if you're buying for the purpose of a long-term hold, your timeline is infinite, right? Which is what I would argue most good investors, value investors are doing in, in the equities market as well. And, you know, everybody who's calling value investors like Warren Buffett an idiot for the past five years, you know, you, you see it all over uh, Wall Street bets or whatever. But I mean, the reality is, look, these, this guy's weathered several recessions, several downturns, several periods of exuberance like this, um, you know, buying with an infinite hold period, like Buffett's strategy, buying valuable assets, buying them at a fair price, ideally underpriced. I think there will actually be opportunity to do that starting today. I don't think it's going to terminate by the fall. I don't think we'll be even close to an economic recovery by the fall, right? I think probably the best deals are going to be, be this time next year, right? And the way I see it, if you're buying it for, for capital appreciation, which is where the majority of money is actually made in real estate, I'll admit that. I just don't think it should be the primary objective of people buying real estate. Um, if you're buying for capital appreciation, you need to realize that prices are not going up until interest rates are coming down. And and when that happens is going to be anybody's guess. My, my perspective on it, I mean, we can get into that, but like my perspective is they're rushing rates up so they can get them back down, but I don't think they're ever going to come back down to where we just saw them, right? Because in there's no way that we're going to be able to cap inflation the way that they think. So any, anyway, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, t I'll let you take. I no, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm glad you, you painted the picture of what an investor is. I, I think we're, we're totally aligned there for sure. Um, I'm not talking about, yeah, I look at investing in real estate the exact same way. You know, it's, uh, it's a wealth builder. You want to have it forever, pass it on to your kids one day and, you know, reap the, you know, the rewards and leverage it along the way. So yeah, definitely long-term. 
So you actually did answer that. So you think prices will even come down or the, the sweet spot to buying would be this time next year? Well, look, like I, I don't see rates, like we have a pretty clear trajectory on what's going to happen in the rate environment, right? Like unless the Fed backs down quicker than they, they say, and, and the Bank of Canada backs down quicker than they say, but even if they back down, even if they stop hiking as aggressively as they're hiking, rates still aren't going down. And unless capital is getting cheaper, prices aren't going to go up at the rates that they went up in the past. So I don't think we'll ever see the type of inflation, nor should we. We shouldn't see house prices growing at double digits. We shouldn't see house prices growing at three, four, five times inflation. Because the reality is that that means that inflation is a problem. And we just learned that. We're learning it in hindsight, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So working with, uh, I'm assuming you work with a lot of investors, your investor yeah. yourself. Um how are others that you've maybe uh, helped purchase something? Uh, how are they looking at this market and, and playing the market right now, timing wise? Yeah, I think that there's there's a couple of different factors, right? So you know, if you if you rewind to the beginning of COVID, like most of the the talking points, most of the expertise that I have, I get from from my investors, from my clients. They're smarter people than I am, right? Like, and I, I ask them as many questions as I can because they've they've been in the market longer than I've been in the market, right? And so. There's a lot of information for me to get from people like that. And most of my most of my investors, people that I would call real investors, were net sellers. So they were selling properties in the GTA, especially throughout COVID, right? Most of them are saying, look, the writing's on the wall. This is not this does not end well. You know, the last time that we saw cheap credit uh, fueling a major economic growth and major inflationary growth was in the late 1980s. And it came, you know, it, it was ended with a whiplash in, in credit uh capital cost increases, right? Interest rate hikes. And it ended with a you know five-year decline in, in real estate, which was, you know, minus 25% on the average Canadian house price, uh, you know, way worse in, in the GTA. And it took, it took 15, no, sorry, 13 years for prices to come back from 1989. It took until 2002 for price for house prices to be where they were in 1989. Right. Um, look to me, the stage is set for, for that to be a very similar, trajectory of, of where we're heading. It, it sucks to say that. Like, I feel like an asshole making this type of commentary, but somebody has to say, it, and I've been saying it for five years, to be honest with you. And, and the reality is, you know, the, our, our, our housing market doesn't function any different than it did back then. Like people want to think that, you know, immigration is going to continue pushing house prices up because there's excess demand, but excess demand is great for house prices to move up, but it doesn't matter if, if the, you know, you don't measure houses in people, right? It's not like, oh, my house is worth 50 people or 100 people or 400,000 people because that's how many uh, more people are immigrating to Canada this year. It's measured in dollars, right? So yeah. it matters how many dollars those people have. And right For now sure. we're seeing credit contraction and, yeah. and that's going to continue until it, until it isn't. Nobody knows when it isn't going to. Yeah. So, I don't know either. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh... For sure. Where so where are your uh, investor clients reallocating the the real estate portfolio? Yeah. So yeah. So most of my investors were buying real estate for yield, right? So they were buying properties back in the GTA, or sorry, back in the day in the GTA, they were buying properties in places in in suburban fringe markets, right? So they were buying in Keswick. Uh, that's where I got a lot of my investors because I'm like I'm one of the you know the, the bigger agents, especially around investment properties in, in Keswick, um, you know Aurora, Newmarket. Um, Innisfil, Barrie, uh, Mississauga, Brampton, Guelph, um, you know, Oshawa out to, um, to the east side, um, you know, Pickering, Ajax. Markets that, that completely blew up price-wise 
once COVID started because everybody from the, from the core was moving out because they wanted that, that backyard premium. They wanted to, to have that, that, that space, right. The staycation, whatever it was. And so those, those, um, areas started to accelerate. So that's where they were buying in the past. And then they exited those markets cause they were like, this price growth is unsustainable. I'm just going to cash out and I can maybe buy back into these markets in, in a couple of years when the prices, when the dust has settled. And it mm-hmm. turns out they were probably right. Maybe they timed it a little bit earlier. They were taking that money and they were going to markets even further away that hadn't yet been impacted by that, that phenomena. So Cornwall was a really popular area, Cornwall, Ontario. Um, you know, in Cornwall, Ontario, one of my, my investors bought you know, 40, 50 units out there. And he was saying, this, this area is great. If I'm stuck here, like if I, don't, if I don't end up selling these and reallocating back to the GTA, I like the market because Walmart's there. It's one hour for, or one and a half hours from Ottawa. It's one and a half hours from Montreal. So you've got that exposure to two major international airports, right? Uh, two major international trade hubs, uh, employment centers, et cetera. Walmart is there. There, it's a great um, area for uh, seniors to retire. It's a great area for new employment growth, warehousing distribution, unskilled labor, which is something that they were bullish on. They felt was going to be started to move further away from the cores. So that's another. That, that's one example. Other examples would be like places like Sudbury, Northern Ontario is a really popular one. So Sudbury, as far north as Timmins, Kirkland Lake, even. Um, French River, et cetera, and, and similar, similar uh, strategy, but fo- more focused on attracting um, clientele in, in the mining space, right? Mm-hmm. Because they felt that the Canadian, uh, as, as a result of the, the um, economic downturn that was going to happen as a result of COVID, we would have to diversify the Canadian economy. And the most logical place to do that is into, you know, lithium, nickel, battery metals, right? Commodity metals. And so they're trying to get, these are guys who invest in real estate. They get a little bit of investing in equities and stuff like that, but they invest in real estate. So how do they get real estate exposure to those market theses that they've formed? And the other, the final piece about both of those markets and a lot of these markets that people are investing, because I had a lot of investors actually, they were fed up with the landlord and tenant board in Canada and they were moving their capital to the United States. Um, but the, the, the guiding principle on that is that you can't build a house for cheaper than they were buying these houses. So they're functionally buying these houses at negative land costs. And that comes back to like the primary guiding principle of where we're sort of seeing a disconnect in real estate investment right now. Historically, real estate has been an amazing inflation hedge as construction costs go up, as costs of everything go up, labor, et cetera. Typically real estate is tied to that because in order to add more real estate, you have to hit that inflation, Right. And right now, real estate outpaced inflation for the past two years in Canada and in the United States as well. And so it's going to have to return to that mean. It will always grow at the rate of inflation. Whether or not what that mean reversion looks like, if it's a steep crash, which we're so far seeing in the, in the greater Toronto area, you know, we've seen prices come down, some prices down already 20% off peak. Um, or if it's, you know, trading sideways until the inflation catches up or whatever it is, um, that element is really what's what's guided them. And they're saying, okay, look, in the GTA right now, my houses are worth more than it would cost to replace them. In Cornwall, in Kirkland Lake, in the United States, I can go buy a house for less money than it would cost to replace it. Yeah. And so I'm getting back into that inflation hedge. Sorry, that I was, was going to touch on that as well. Yeah. Um, does, it, does it make sense though that uh, for, for possibly certain areas, they're, they're, it'll always hover above inflation just because demand will always be more than the average area? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, like... If you read, um, you know, Jane Jacobs' book, uh, "The Death and Life of Great American Cities," you know, it, some people are arguing that the, um, you know, what, what's happened as a result of COVID, the the way the disparity that's been encoded in the in the economy 
uh, you know, the erasure of the middle class, the rich the um, divisiveness into the rich and the poor is going to ruin places like Los Angeles, as an example. And, you know, maybe the and, and political decisions as well are, are, are ruining places like that. That would that's just one example that I've seen, you know, well argued from both sides and that areas like that are, are going to be seen as Detroit, right? Like that that L.A. metro area will be seen as the Detroit in 50, 60, 100 years. I don't know whether or not that's true. I'm probably not, I'm not experienced or knowledgeable enough in the urban economics of it, but like pieces like that are, you know, before COVID or, you know, five, 10 years ago, everybody would say everyone in the world wants to go to Los Angeles. It's the American dream, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger wants to go there. Anyone, you know, anyone from Europe, uh, you know, um, the East, the far East, everybody wants to go to Los Angeles, right? California. Um, do we f- still feel that way? I don't know, right? But but the idea, you know, people have a similar philosophy about Toronto today, and I, I would I would say that's you know it's arguable that that could happen in the fullness of time. But I don't know exactly. Like these are these are qualitative things, and when you think about consumer sentiment, that's an aggregate of all of these qualitative decisions. Are we building a marketable Canada for? 400,000 immigrants to come here? Or is the United States more marketable for, for better immigrants, maybe more sought after immigrants? Is the UK, is Australia, et cetera, right? Because one of the primary drivers that a lot of these competitive OECD markets um, is using to stimulate their economy to get out of this COVID recession is bringing in immigration, right? And so we now we have to be globally competitive because we're not just the, we're not, we're no longer the place that everybody wants to go. Um, and so, you know, these are, these are where those qualitative dialogues start to happen. So I would say yes, like to answer your question succinctly, yes, certain areas should outperform because they have microeconomic benefits going. Toronto being a good example, more people from the GTA are moving back into that microeconomic area. And Toronto's actually up 1% since February, whereas everywhere, in, everywhere else in the GTA is down and down pretty big since February. That's that's a solid point for sure. I I agree with you. Uh, I I do think tides like that um, you can you can definitely see it turning for sure. Like GTA Toronto Canada in general is not you know what it was perceived even like I think five years ago. I'm just speaking yeah. to people in other countries, which I do all the time. Um, so you're, it's, you're definitely hearing like a noticeable change in perception. At least I am for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I do agree with that. Um, but I do think that that's going to, I do still think there could be maybe a window where you could play that yield game and, and do, you know, gain a bit more re- return or could gain some returns on, on investments here in the next yeah. few years. But where, where would you go uh, beyond that? Like, what are you seeing investors do? What are you doing? I mean, a, a lot of the investors that I, that I work with, um, you know, they're, they're, they're interesting cats and, and, and they, they explore things that like, you know, the, stones that I wouldn't have, have left unturned otherwise. You know, a lot of people focusing on on thinking about that, that K-shaped recovery that they believe is happening in the Canadian economy, that the middle class is disappearing and that, you know, basically, and you can see this in, in, in if you just examine Canada as a later cycle uh, housing economy, right? Like if you look at a lot of European economies, Germany being a, a fair example, although they've really tried to ramp up their homeownership rates among young people as of late, um, but some of the, you know, Switzerland could be another one. You have high institutional ownership uh, of, of real estate and low end user ownership. So low owner occupier ownership. 
Um, and that's fine. Young people, they want to live in urban areas. They do that and they rent, right? And then they don't start their families in urban areas. They move out to the suburbs. Very traditional patterns, right? Very traditional urban economic patterns. Uh, maybe not suburbs so much, but smaller cities. And, uh, you know, and Canada seems to be going in that direction, right? So you, and you're getting more and more wealth concentrated into that real estate investment. And people who didn't own assets prior to COVID, they got, they got pushed down just relative, like by inflation, uh, their buying power got erased far enough that they're now out of the middle class. So there's a lower middle class and an upper middle class. And that gap is just going to keep widening as inflation pushes those asset values up. And eventually, the, you know, that those holdings, they flip into institutional ownerships or they uh, aggregate into institutional ownership or whatever it is. Um, and you have a, you have a, a, a renter's economy, especially among young people and any of the end user ownership is handed down through generations. Right. Yeah. Um, um, you look at, you know, so, sorry, yeah, go just, ahead. No, just no, to finish, finish that, yeah, yeah, the only, ahead. the only piece like, so, so a lot of um, my investor clients are focusing on providing good quality rental for that sort of lower middle class Canadian. And, and a lot of, in a lot of cases, that means, you know, people on Ontario works, people on the disability system, working together with, uh, with those programs, uh, creating you know systems that are direct like and, and create value for for tenants uh, within that profile. So you know accessibility, uh, proximity to you know because a lot of people these are lower income folks, right? So walkability, proximity to transit, proximity to hospitals, creating that that intimate environment that that makes them have everything that they need within a um, you know a rental accommodation because they they don't have the luxury of being able to use their dollars to go get exactly what they need, right? Yeah. And, and that's a that's a part of the the economy that that is often um, not well catered to, right? For sure, I agree. I, I think another tricky part in, in navigating this um, this economy right now is, uh, I, I think another th something else that no one has experienced now is I think we are we could be living through almost like a, a shift in in economic power, like you know global yeah. reserve currency, the USD, how that ties yeah. to the Canadian dollar, like what that shift will actually mean to your assets, your, your real estate, your, your portfolio, like, how are you looking at that? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because, um, when people talk about that, especially you talk about the influence of the far East and I don't know what, what, um, China's, uh, economic recovery is going to look like, but there's certainly, you know, some power struggles, some economic warfare, some jockeying for control of the, the global economy and China's playing a big role in that. Right. And, and similar things happening with Russia, you know, with, with Ukraine, et cetera, that, you know, they're certainly not improving the economic situation globally. Um, and it, it comes down to a question of like, I try not to, to provide too much of an opinion on a lot of these things, but it comes down to perspective of whether or not people think that the leadership in, you know, in those areas versus the leadership in the Western world is most likely to actually lead us out of this economic downturn. Right. And you can, you can form your investment thesis accordingly, right? Like I have a lot of investors actually purchasing in, in Africa, as an example, certain areas in Africa, they're buying land, they're buying rental properties, et cetera, because China's new silk road investment program. And these are guys that are buying real estate in those countries. And there are a couple of, you know, uh, areas that were uh, built during the British Empire that have sort of British Imperial land registry systems similar to Canada, similar to, you know, OECD or Commonwealth nations. Um, and they're buying there to get exposure to China's economic growth if that ends up being the, the way, because you can get in, in an area like that for far cheaper, right? Similarly, people right. buying in in places in the United States where they think, you know, that, that the economic recovery of those areas, 
you know, a lot of Sunbelt stuff, a lot of like, you know, your flyover country, kind of like trailer trash America that people talk about, right? Buying in those areas, thinking that an economic resurrection is something that, that could happen because mm-hmm. of repatriation of supply chains, as an example, right? Um, so that that's one of those macro themes that really plays in, but because like the general population is so left out of those discussions, you kind of have to like guess, research really thoroughly and form your own opinion on exactly what direction you think it's going to swing. And then you, you act accordingly and you can, you can act accordingly with yeah. the way that you invest. Right. For sure. Are, are you seeing less investors than reinvesting back in the GTA? Yeah, I am personally, but that's probably because I'm, I'm a downside risk guy and I, I called, you know, the, the GTA a bubble like over a year ago. Right. So, and, and I, I, I wasn't really exceptionally active in representing people and, and pushing them to purchase uh, in investments in the GTA. And, and look, I made the right call. I got lucky maybe, who knows, but I was, I was mostly reiterating that sentiment that I was seeing from the more experienced investors that I, that I trust. Um, I am seeing now uh, an increase in inquiries, not so much activity yet, but inquiries, right? People are put there. A lot of people have a similar perspective to you. If, if the monetary system, uh, you know, central banks and the government can get this under control within six months to 12 months, there is probably a decent chance that, um, you know, we could see some sort of recovery starting in the fall. I don't, I personally don't think that's happening. And most of the smart people that I trust don't. Um, but, you know, they're starting to look just in case they get optimistic and, and something in the situation changes, right? Midterms yeah. in the States would be a big, big deciding factor, right? If we start to see some changes in economic leadership there. A more aggressive economic policy. Um, yeah, I have to but, agree. Like, I, I, I would agree. The fall would probably be too soon. Definitely, yeah. way too soon. Nearly yeah, impossible sure. to see. Sure. Um, are you seeing any action on the commercial side? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's been there's been a lot of optimism in, in what the reopening of the city looks like. Um, you're starting to see office leasing kind of ramp up again. Like, look, there's a, there's a lot of asset that's confused there that's being shuffled around, right? Um, you know, and another big, big element is that a lot of commercial sites, especially in, in like your strip malls and stuff in the, in the greater Toronto area and the suburbs, those are all development sites, realistically, right? You get a power center on Young Street, your Home Depot plazas, whatever it is, right? They're all like, those are all going to be 10, 20, 30, 40 story condo buildings in the fullness of time. The bigger the site, the more, more units you can put there. We're a housing driven economy, right? We're not a retail driven economy. We are over retailed a little bit, but not like the United States is. Um, you're starting to see more and more optimism for those types of or more appetite for those types of products just because people are filling the pipeline right and they're anticipating deals and they're saying okay look this retail plaza it's at 30 percent vacancy now because covid because of covid a lot of those retail like look we're entering into a recession and retail just got slaughtered for two years right like a lot of these retailers are not going to emerge doing well as a result of this right and so there's people already lining up to say, okay, as soon as that plaza is distressed, I want to be putting offers in on it. I want to start developing it now. I want to start going to get the applications now so that when I do make, make my offer to that person, um, you know, I already have my ducks in a row and I'm already halfway through the planning process. Cause you know, it takes five years to develop that into, into housing. Right. So there's a lot of optimism in, in the, in the, in the, in the shift. And, and when it talks about, you know, you're talking about this major secular shift that's happening in the way that we think about everything, right. But for real estate being a big component, um, the, there's a big trade, a big real estate trade in what that shift looks like. Right. And so a lot of repositioning of, of existing assets, a lot of redevelopment, et cetera. That's where I'm starting to see the most appetite happening. And that's because a lot of people want to buy, they want to buy those things distressed and they want to 
you know, either have them under contract or take possession of them in five years when we're on the recovery, you know, when we're sort of on that first turning of a new economy and, you know, and they're, they're developing those products or, or pre-selling those products or leasing those products during that, that upstroke of the economy, but they're kind of, they're going through the, the due diligence on the downstroke, right? Cause that's yeah. the, the downstroke to a lot of people. That's a period of wasted time, right? So how do you create opportunity during that period for the, for the upstroke? Yeah, makes sense. Uh, what are you seeing on the financing side? Any changes there? Yeah, I think like we started seeing, um, you know, your your A side lenders, so your your big six banks. Um, they started appraising everything in January, February. That's sort of like when I realized things were starting to get a little bit scary, right? And and um, and so that. There's a lot of appraisals, a lot of them failing in March, April, May, still today, right? Like uh, people who are overpaying in, in January, February, March. Um, so there's some contraction there. Um, you know, B-side, some of the the, the more um, Wild West lenders, your B, your your C, your private stuff, right? B-plus, the private stuff is already gone. Like they're, they're, yeah. they're not in the market anymore. Are you noticing a, a, a bigger uh, appetite for private lenders? Yeah, there's a huge demand for it because the market's a mess right now, but there's no capital, right? Like there's no private lenders out there. Like, cause they're, look, like risk happens fast and, and you start to see the, the, the capital contraction happen from the top down on the risk profile. So the highest risk people are gone. They're already, they've, they left the market a month and a half ago or earlier. They're, like in February, March, they were leaving the market, right? As soon as prices started to roll over, cause I get calls from these guys all the time. They're like, is the market moving down yet? Cause as soon as it is, they want out. You got to imagine, right? Yeah. These guys are in second position behind uh you know an a lender who has a huge legal team uh and let's say that a lender is at 65 70 percent and they're the the b lender the the private is at you know they only have 10 percent equity and or 10 percent lent to, to the deal but they're at uh 70 to 80 percent right so yeah. prices come down and you know they were at a, a 80 percent loan to value before at a million bucks now that house price drops from a million to eight hundred thousand. now all of a sudden they're at 100 percent loan to value Every dollar that that price drops, they're getting wiped out if that person ever has to sell, right? And mm-hmm. they're like, that's money they'll never see again. So, so they they're gone. Privates, I would. It's very hard to find a private private loan today. And if you do, honestly, if you can find a private loan today, this is one of the things I'll tell you about the current market. Be very careful with that lender because there's a lot of people in economic downturns like this, who you know, I mean, you hear about loan sharks. Um, this loan to own concept is not uncommon. And and if you look if you look closely at what was happening in the early '90s. Uh, it's worth it's worth being being aware of. I could totally see that for sure. Um, yeah. So, where would you say then, if you had you know capital today that you obviously don't want to keep in the bank um, mm-hmm. due to inflation, like where are you allocating that? I mean, from my perspective, like I think um, stability in, in the Canadian economy is going to come from commodities, so commodity metals, food, agriculture, right. Um, Things that people need to need to survive, regardless. Um, and shelter is one of those things. I, I would agree with that. I just think that it's been overpriced. If you can buy shelter at a fair price, where it cash flows even at high rates, like if you're buying a, an asset today and you're getting a decent deal on it, and it cash flows at a five percent fixed rate, it's not a bad deal. Like objectively, it's really not if it's cash positive, right? Where are you finding cash flows like that right now? Yeah, some of those like sub markets. Like you, you gotta be if you're cash flowing, if you're cash flow positive at like an eighty percent loan to value on a on like a duplex, let's say, you gotta be like at a ten cap, 
like ten percent mm-hmm. cap rate market, right? So what? There's like five of those left in the province of Ontario, maybe. Like, you know, Sarnia mm-hmm. is not one of them. I'd say like again, it's like northern, like super northern Ontario, um, like French River. We've been doing a lot of stuff that's sort of like in that 10, 10 cap territory. Like just uh, we just closed on like a, a fourplex last week, right? Like I'm still buying, even though the the, the market's not moving uh, in, in the direction I want it to. Um, Cornwall, there's some 10 cap stuff. Uh, if you mm. care, you know, it's just being selective. Yeah. You gotta be like, yeah. a, the thing is a lot of people are impatient, right? Like they don't, they don't want to go through the weeds. They don't want to pick through a bunch of shitty properties and look at and, and go and tour them all and whatever. But like there's deals out there, they exist. There are, and the distress is already showing, right. Mm. Um, or the, or the fear is already showing. And, and a lot of people are offloading assets cause they want to cash. This might be, you know, if you're, if you're a boomer, right? Baby boomer, Gen X, and you and you went through 1990 and you're starting to see prices roll over, right? And you're like, shit, I've been here before. I'm going to get rid of everything. So while my, I will never have as much money for my retirement ever again. It's going to take 12 years. If, if, if it takes the exact same amount of time to recover from this as it did in 89, I'm going to be dead by then, right? You got to imagine people are actually like, and the, the people who own all of the assets right now have been through this shit. They've been through this in the 90s, right? So yeah. There's decent deals out there in those markets. That's that's you got to go far, man. It's drive. We call it drive till you quantify, right? So not drive till you qualify, but drive. You yeah. know, there's a lot of guys yield hunting, and like I'm happy to send you properties like that, or you know, if any of your your investors listening are interested in, in trying to find properties like that, the GTA will be. I, I honestly think you'll be able to find you know six, seven, eight, eight caps in the GTA. Uh, you know, within the next two years, I, I truly believe that. Today is not the day. Right. So if, if your outlook is, let's say, 10 plus years, would you yeah. be parking money like out in Cornwall, let's just say, or in Toronto? Um, I think I don't I don't know if I'd be buying. I mean, if I'm buying today, I'd be buying in Cornwall. But if, if it's in the next couple of years, like if, if Toronto comes down 20 percent off peak, I'd be I'd be buying in Toronto rather than Cornwall. I mean, mm-hmm. unless. It depends. I, to be honest with you, actually, that that depends on what happens with construction costs, right? Because that that to me is the big variable. Like in Cornwall right now, you can buy a duplex, even if you depreciate it to 50, 60% of its value, you're buying it at, you know, negative 100, negative $150,000 land, land value, right? Like you mm-hmm. couldn't build, you couldn't, you build, rebuild the house, it's going to cost you like 500, 600K, beat it up as badly as it's already beat up. And it's still, you know, it would still be, you'd, you'd still be up. That with with what you're buying these things for today. So, if if we get into a, a you know brutal recession, which I honestly think could really happen, I think Canada we've mismanaged our, our, our monetary economy so poorly that it could really I could really see it happening. So if we get into that, you know your your labor market starts to taper off, right? Projects start halting. A lot of our economy is driven by housing. It's driven by the the construction of housing, right? So you start to see trades jobs drying up, right? You start to see material demands drying up. Not as many people are out there looking to buy lumber. Not everybody's building a deck. Not everybody's building a high rise. Concrete, you know, demand disappears. If all of those factors start to come down, then construction costs are going to come down with it. Labor costs are going to, you know, guys who are in the skilled trades, electricians, plumbers, et cetera, they're not going to be out, you know, bidding on, on a hundred jobs at a time anymore. They're going to be you know, they're, they're going to be looking for work, right? And I, I don't know if we get that far, but if that if that happens, construction costs come down. To me, then Toronto is is really your your better bet, um, because where if we're going to build more houses in the fullness of time, where are we going to do it? We're going to do it in in urban areas, and it's going to start driving that cost back up. If costs come down, the relative advantage that you have in a place like Cornwall and a place like Kirkland Lake, where it costs, you know, where where you're buying below replacement cost. 
is gone, right? The low as con, as construction costs come down, your relative, you, you know what I mean, the relative benefit yeah. that you get from yeah. a place like that. That's what I would call sort of like your price floor, your you know like your your hedge. You can yeah. never. I I don't really see these houses selling for significantly less than it costs to replace them, as long as we're immigrating more and more people into Canada and we can't build houses faster than, you know. So when, when was, you, you might've already mentioned it, but when was the last time uh, that houses were generally priced at replacement costs? Uh, like sometime between 20, well, it depends on the market, but like, let's say in the GTA sometime between 2017 and, and 2020, I would say like, right. They started, they kind of got to above that, like in 2020 in the GTA, like right when COVID like when they dropped rates and COVID started to blow the market up towards the end of 2020, I would say that's when they sort of peaked over, but then they just kept growing. Right. And it was great. Like not, you know, you get in houses that are trading 50% over replacement costs. Right mm. now. Not, they were in February in the G, of the GTA. So there's a lot of room for downside risk there. Right? Yeah. But, but um, so historically then home prices were always at around construction costs. Well, yeah, I mean, they, w- they would trade pretty tight because the reality is like, you know, I mean, Georgina is a good example. There was a builder up here who got land for, for pretty cheap and he had to sell a, a phase of his uh, development to to secure construction financing. It's not uncommon. That's why people get the best deal in phase one, right? In phase, condo or detached, right? So they sell, they're selling those cheap so they can do it fast. They, can, they have a lot of demand, right? They're, those houses were selling for like $650,000, $700,000. You couldn't buy a cheaper house on the detached market. You uh, resale, right? So it, if you're an end user, you're like, I might as well just go buy a brand new house, the same house. So, you know, I'm going to buy a three three bedroom detached home. I might as well go buy a brand new stone one, right? Rather than buying the uh, the same house used resale in, in the market. So the supply pipeline. This is like when you get back to that supply and demand. The supply pipeline can always sort of dictate what's happening. In your, in your price environment. The challenge is that the supply pipeline in, in real estate isn't super elastic. It's not flexible, right? It's not responsive. It's not agile. It takes a long time to build houses. It takes a lot, long time to get planning, architects, permission, blah, 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 right? Governments are slow. So right now we're seeing the construction market kind of rolling over because they were chasing these high prices and like Forma, uh, a huge project in, in the city of Toronto, like massive, one of the ma- most massive towers built in a long time. Um, just launched like two, three days ago, like last yeah. week. Right. Um, and that's kind of like, right. Like we know that the market's rolling over. We know that even condos are coming down in value slowly. Right. Um, it, that's a high risk launch, right? You're going to start to see more and more launches canceled because the supply pipeline doesn't have an incentive to enter the market if prices aren't moving up anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so that, that's sort of how like the whole thing ties together. Right. Because if, if, um, if house prices come down, then projects start getting canceled. If projects start getting canceled, then your construction costs start coming down. If construction costs start coming down, then developers say, oh, well, my margins are higher. Maybe I'll start building again. And then your supply starts ramping up again, right? And that's sort of how that equilibrium between supply and demand in the real estate market is a moving target, right? Going back a bit, when do you, so rates, they're supposed to sort of stabilize by what, the fall? Is that sort of the consensus? I, and I, I would argue that's that's realistic. Yeah. So how much of what's going on now it, w- would you um, would you reason towards just like buyer consumer confidence? You know, just everything everyone's seeing on the headlines is inflation, recession, yeah. uh, interest rates. So like there's a lot of buyer hesitancy. 
uh, not a lot of confidence out there from the consumer. And so come the fall, when you start seeing things hopefully stabilize at this point, the new normal starts to kick in with, you know, what's yeah. realistic out there. Um, at that point, could you see things maybe start to not, not accelerate, but, you know, slightly go up again? Yeah, I think that, look, once we've got into a predictable kind of slot where interest rates aren't moving up anymore, um, I don't think things will start, like, I don't think prices will start moving up, but they'll stop going down. And that means something, right? Like, that's where we can kind of, if if we get to that point, then we can kind of think about growing at the rate of inflation again. We can get level-headed. People can start trading in and out of the market. There's no more stress. There's no more fear. And, and, you know, people have sort of given up on the idea of getting rich quick with real estate. There's no more people trying to speculate in the real estate market anymore, right? Um, I think that the, the question is, the big question for me with all of that is what comes next, right? And, and it's what, where inflation is once we've completed that rate hiking cycle, because nobody said anything about when rates are going to come back down. The reality is, they're likely rushing rates up so that they can get them back down. Cause by the time we have another hundred basis points on the interest rate on the, on the overnight rate in Canada, the economy is going to be decimated. Like let's, you, you, there's no way of saying that nicely, right? Like it's not going to be a pretty economic picture by the end of this year for Canadians, right? They're going to likely, they're going to go back to what they, what they know is the, the best way to, you know, ramp up the economy, which is, Make, che- make credit cheap again and start quantitative easing, start buying bonds off of banks, start putting money or buying bonds off of businesses and start putting money back into the economy in some way, shape or form. If, if they, you know, if inflation is still high, if, which I do think it will be, I think inflation is going to run at 3% in the 3% for probably a decade. I think we're in for an inflationary decade because I think that only a portion of that inflation has anything to do with monetary policy. I think a lot of it has to do with supply chain disruptions, geopolitical issues, war, fuel costs, et cetera, right? So you if, sorry, you, you don't think the inflation today is caused by like monetary supply? I think a lot of it is. Like I think a good portion of it is. There's too much credit. There's too much money in the market, too much money chasing too few goods, right? But I think that also there's real costs. Like lumber is a great example, right? Lumber was a very, very responsive to supply chain disruptions and the prices went up and they came back down and then they went up again. So it's bouncy, right? We don't really have a clear picture of what that looks like for most goods that the Canadian consumes because we get a lot of these goods from places where we don't have good economic data, right? The Far East who, you know, like they, they, they don't have to disclose things about their economy to us, right? But we know that, you know, China right now is basically shut down as a result of their, their COVID zero policy. And so all of the shipping, like this is, from my perspective, the um, disruption-driven inflation is just getting started, right? Just getting started. And so monetary policy can erase a lot of that. I really think that that's the right, right, like the right idea. But, and, and I think that Canadians are really starting to realize that, yeah, kind of have two, two ways to go about this, right? One is you destroy our economy. It, the devil that you know through a recession and two is that you just destroy our economy through the devil that you don't know, which is basically like a Weimar style hyperinflation. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, based on Canadians, Canadians who are filling up gas today, as an example, have seen what a hundred percent inflation on a major cost looks like would probably prefer a recession than to have to pay a hundred percent more for everything. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, it's the, it's the worst, it's the better of two evils for sure. Yeah. And you have to decide. And I think, it's tough to argue against the decisions that are being made now, but you know, my whole thing is like, how, how long can you sustain this? Like 
you know, eventually the supply of of actual money being pumped out um, is just going to cause continuous hyperinflation that might even cause the the total debasement of the Canadian currency, right? It's happened. It's happened throughout history. I mean, why can't it happen now? Well, in Canada, I think it could easily, you know, like could easily lead to that, like you're describing, because specifically in the U.S., quantitative easing, when they purchase bonds off of businesses to stimulate them, right? Like that's actually a good revenue generator for the U.S., for the U.S. government, right? Or for the Federal Reserve, right? Like they're buying bonds off of um, real businesses in the United States because they have those there. In Canada, we have a very oligopolistic economy, right? So we have you know, six banks, we have five telecom companies, five utilities companies, yeah. right? Like, and so you're buying bonds through a very limited scope of how they can put that in the economy. And one of the biggest pieces of that scope is central or sorry, chartered banks, right? So you're buying bonds off of RBC, off of TD, et cetera. And they have all of this excess cash now. And they're like, how do, where do we put all this stuff? And what's the best way for them to make yield on excess cash? Pump it into residential mortgages, right? That's mainline putting credit into the Canadian economy. And, and that's gone now. And once you start to see that the paper gains being erased by that, like at the same time, seeing the capital costs or the, the, the um, monthly mortgage costs, the monthly debt servicing costs of Canadian households go up 30, 40, 50% over the next couple of years, that's going to have a huge contraction in the Canadian economy. I could totally see what you're describing. The only thing we have going for us is that oil prices are high. That's it. That's the only bull case for Canadian like for, for yeah, the Canadian economy honest. right now, maybe that we have, you know, exposure to uh, precious metals, natural resources, et cetera. But we, uh, to be honest with you, respectfully, our current administration has proven that they are not the ones who are going to properly diversify into those aspects of the economy, right? Yeah. All it's aside, they've had, they've had eight years to prove whether or not they can do it and they haven't, right? So. Yeah, I know for sure. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're li- relying on government to turn things around, um, I think you should probably stop and look out yeah, where yeah, and try yeah. to figure things out yourself. But um, yeah, I'm looking when you said like, Hey, what's next? That's sort of where I'm looking. I think when you look more like long-term what's next, um, I think that again, that, that secular shift in the global mm-hmm. um, thing, I, I'm actually reading a book right now. If you Ray Dalio, uh, changing world order. Yeah. Yeah. It. So and actually after, after you've read that book, read uh, the fourth turning. Have you read that book? Uh, no. Yeah, no. check check that book out. It's one of the one of the most riveting. What's that one? Say the title again. The fourth turning. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember exactly who wrote it, but yeah, uh, I, I, got I mean, it. it's nice. especially if you map it over the the cycles that Dalio describes, and I mean, like a lot of the stuff that I've been mentioning in this conversation. We talk about late cycle housing, right? The the detachment between the the, the rich and the poor how these things heal themselves over time economically, how, you know, we've supersized our credit cycle, right? Like you have to imagine that we've created debt that's so cheap and we put so much of it into the market. You have like a household debt to disposable income ratio of like 300%, right? Like, so we don't even have a comparable for what this looks like historically. Like if you were to take the last major credit cycle, it would have been like 150% debt to disposable income ratio, right? In Canada, we're literally the most household indebted country in the world, right? So yeah. like, this is not going to end well for us no. at all. There's no way to argue that it does. I actually think that the best things that we have going for us is the fact that we're immigrating countries that have different political philosophies from us that actually probably have more aggressive policies towards repairing this, the, the problems that we've caused here. And that the, the two countries that have the highest capital exposure to us 
the United States and China are the ones that are jockeying for control in the world. So the reality is we're going to end up as somebody's resource playground. We're going to end up as somebody's, you know, product to be exploited. And we just mm-hmm. hope that it's the one who's running the world, right? It probably, and, and I don't know, like that, but that's, yeah. that's kind of the outcome right now. It's, it's yeah, insane no. to say it, but that's sort of how it looks for us. I, I think, yeah, I think this whole conversation sort of, so the, the reason for this podcast, and uh, I'm so glad I kicked it off is because uh, I think we're, we're sort of on the same alignment as to what we see things or what the potential of the future looks like. So yeah, my purpose with this podcast is really just to have a normal conversation with people, insightful people in different industries that I'm sort of thinking about in my head and just getting different perspectives. And hopefully together we can navigate our, our, ourselves through this in the best possible way, because I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer. Everyone has the same information. It's all unprecedented stuff that no one has really gone yeah. through to that level. So there's no right or wrong. You just got to, you know, do what you can with the best information, you know, and um, see what happens. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, it's actually funny, like, you know, to kind of come full circle from yeah. the discussion that we had at the beginning of COVID, but also like, you know, I started podcasting like when you and I had that conversation and I was like, I was doing it on audio only before that. And then I saw that you did it on like just on Zoom and just uploaded it. I think I asked you how to do that or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I started doing it as well. And now like I actually just got signed on to like a national investment podcast, like one of the top five uh, nice. in the country. So I'd love to have nice. you on as a guest. Congratulations. Can you yeah, name it yet or? Uh, yeah, I probably can. Um, so it's the, um, the Canadian investor guys and they're, they're doing a spinoff into the nice. real estate, um, space. So they're going to have like Canadian real estate awesome, investor. Yeah. So it'll be really focused on the conversation that we just had. I think it'd be maybe a little bit less, um, defeatist maybe, or, yeah. or cynical <laughs> as the way that I just said it. But that, I mean, look, that's my real, my real perspective. And yeah, I'd love to have you on, especially given that, you know, you're interacting with realtors every day, right? So I'm probably one of the more bearish realtors or probably more, one of the more cynical realtors uh, who exists in the space. But I'd love to get your, your perspective on sort of the aggregate of the sentiment that you're seeing, the opportunities that are in the market, et cetera. And as well as the data, right? The data side, it's the patterns that you're seeing in, in the real estate market, how to, how to kind of blend that, that integration of technology to use that to make better decisions, et cetera. So for sure. Yeah. We'll definitely be connecting, yeah, I'll be connecting in, sure. the, in, the, in the future awesome. um, about, about getting you on for that. Too. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, Daniel, appreciate it. We'll uh, definitely chat again. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Appreciate the time.